Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 21, we are slowly but surely making our way through the book of Acts, and there's 28 chapters, and we are considering Paul's journey to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. The Spirit's already told him that's where he's going. Paul's been warned by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, of what awaits in Jerusalem. And now, last week or two weeks ago, when we trailed off, Paul had arrived there lodging at the home of a man named Manasin. That's an interesting name, Manasin. And this this man named Manasin had come to know Jesus likely sometime around Pentecost. He was called one of the early disciples and probably was able to tell Luke about some of the details from Pentecost. And and this morning, we're going to consider the story of how Paul goes from arriving in Jerusalem to arrested there. And as we're going to see, Paul's attempt to love believing Jews becomes the reason that he will be misrepresented and attacked by unbelieving Jews in the temple. And once Paul is arrested... The remainder of his ministry in Acts is, as Marita writes, basically a set of reactions to opposition and assaults along the way, along his journey to Rome. And and yet this path of suffering for Paul and witness from Paul brings him ultimately to to Rome, his spirit-given destination. So what we're going to see today is that even when things go wrong for those who do right, our sovereign king is still at work. Do you believe that? When things go wrong, for those who do right, our our king is still at work. And we're going to dive in, beginning in verse 17 of Acts 21, in a message that I'm calling, Good Intentions, Bad Actions, God's Direction. This is uh, borrowed from Scott Kellum's commentary. He, He divides this text into those three sections, and I think that's what we see. Good intentions, bad actions, and God's direction. Before we read the text, would you pray with me? God, we ask, knowing that you have promised that your Holy Spirit will will guide us into all truth, we ask that your Spirit would help us as we read your Scripture and as we endeavor to understand it, God, that you would help us to understand. God, that you would apply your word to our lives in our place of need, both individually and corporately as a church, God, that we would be, we'd be shaped by Scripture and not by self. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Acts 21, beginning in verse 17, would you hear with me the word of the Lord? When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. 
Then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. What in the world do we make of this? Here's the big idea that I want you to grab from these verses. Uh, Paul has good intentions. He desires to keep the church united and on mission and is willing to humble himself for the sake of the unity of the church. In these verses, we see Paul's humility and selfless love in keeping the church unified. In verse 17, Paul and his Gentile companions, right, Paul is bringing an entourage back from his third missionary journey, mostly Gentiles, they are received with gladness. This is gospel-driven unity in action. We see Jews and Gentiles united in Jesus. And in verse 18 and 19, Paul and his companions meet James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church, and Paul tells them one by one, meaning each and every one of the things that God had done through his ministry. I, I imagine this was a long report. I imagine at some point, somebody was like, all right, Paul, we're good. You were in Ephesus for almost three years we got it. God did amazing things. And the response of James and the elders, these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, what was their response? It was, it was praise. They were glorifying God for His work among the Gentiles. And then in the second half of verse 20, we learn that God's work hasn't been isolated to Paul and what he's been doing among the nations. Rather, God has also been at work in Jerusalem. Do you see that? The elders say to Paul, what Paul has done, do you, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Now, here's a quick aside for you. When people believe in Jesus, when they really believe in Jesus, it's in the perfect tense. It's not that they believed and they might lose their belief, but they have believed. It's completed action with enduring results. Why do we believe at North Roanoke Baptist Church that those who are truly saved will truly endure? Because God does the saving. And when God saves us, He does not let us go. They have believed. It's like if you have been married. You're not supposed to get unmarried, right? Marriage, you don't have to get, wake up every day and go to your wedding to be married the day after you're married. You're just married, right? So, so it is with salvation. Those whom God saves, God keeps. They have believed. Thousands of Jews in Jerusalem have believed. And to this point, everything in the text 
is wonderful. We have great news about Jews and Gentiles being brought into God's kingdom in the only way possible, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But then in verses 20 and 21, we learn these thousands of Jewish believers are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about Paul that he teaches all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, meaning to forsake the law, telling them specifically not to circumcise their children or to walk in the customary laws of Judaism. Uh Uh-oh, got a problem. Paul, which is it? Are we having to throw away our culture and our customs in order to come to Christ? And we can understand why they would have this question, right? Paul's letters often clarify that the righteousness that God requires of us only comes through faith in Jesus and not by works of the law. I like to say it this way, Jesus plus anything for salvation is an error. If you, well, I got to believe in Jesus and I got to get baptized in order to be saved. Wrong. I got to believe in Jesus and I have to, to go to church every Sunday in order to be saved. Wrong. Now, if you're truly saved, you're going to want to engage with the family of God. If you're truly saved, you're going to want to represent that in being baptized, right? So genuine salvation issues forth in genuine works, but it is not law-keeping that saves us. It is Christ alone who saves us. In Romans 3.20, Paul says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What is the purpose of the law? The knowledge of sin. You want to know why so many children today grow up? Well, maybe I should say never grow up. It's because their parents never put the law down in the home when they're young. The law serves a purpose. The law drives our children to see their wicked hearts and their need for the gospel. And if you pretend that your little child is not a wicked sinner in need of a savior and that their proclivities aren't sinful tendencies and you just paper tiger over it, you wake up one day and you have a 15-year-old hellion in your house who is as big or bigger than you are, and they don't care what you say because you never laid down the law. That, that was for free and not really the main point of this text. <laughs> but I'm telling you, Christian parents, stop listening to the world and coddling your little toddler. Stop it. You are hurting. It's child abuse. Child Protective Services says laying down the law is child abuse. But you want to know what child abuse is? Not laying down the law. I'm I'm sick of it. We, We live in a world where parents are told they can't parent. Parent your child for the glory of God. Show them their wicked heart. Lay down the law in your home. Show them when they violate it and take them to Jesus as the only remedy. The only way your child's going to stop lying, the only way your child's going to ever be respectful towards others is if you show them the sinfulness of their heart by laying down the law, upholding a standard, and driving them to the living Lord Jesus Christ who alone can change their heart. Lay down the law. 
Wow. That was a deviation from the notes. <laughs> the law is good. It shows us our sin. And now we have Jewish believers in verse 20 who are zealous for the law, but they, they are believers. They have been saved. And what in the world does this mean? We know that it means they're eager to maintain the ceremonial laws or the Jewish cultural practices that had been such a part of their identity before coming to Christ. It doesn't mean that they thought keeping the law was going to save them or was necessary for their salvation. We know that because the letter that was sent to Gentiles back in Acts 15 clarifies that the Gentiles don't have to keep the law in order to be saved. So that's not what they're saying. And we also know that because if, if Paul had heard and understood the Jews saying we have to keep the law to be saved, he would have just referenced one of his letters and said that's nonsense. So what in the world then is going on? These Jews live in and around Jerusalem and they fear that Paul has said that because law-keeping can't save them, that they can't maintain these practices that had identified them as Jewish and informed their culture before coming to know Jesus. Imagine that you celebrated Passover your whole life as a Jew, and now because you know Jesus, you're told, well, you can't keep the Passover anymore. Imagine somebody said to you, you can't celebrate Christmas in your home ever again. That's, that's kind of the feel of, of what they thought Paul was saying. And that's not what Paul was saying. What Paul was saying is you, not, you must not misunderstand these practices as saving because they've been fulfilled in Christ. Paul is saying you're not right with God because of what you do or because of who your parents are or because you're Jewish any more than you can be right with God because you're Gentile. He says things like this in Romans chapter 2, circumcision, the, the sign of the, the old covenant, indeed is of value if what? If you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision, meaning you're outside of God's covenant. So who has broken the law? Everybody. So what good is circumcision physically? None. He goes on, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one on the inside, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. You need the Spirit of God to cut away the stoniness of your heart and make you new on the inside. That is the covenant that counts with God. So now, as Marita puts it, word has spread that Paul was teaching them to avoid these customary activities, but it was simply untrue. Rather, he's urging Jews not to trust in their Jewishness, warning of the dangers of trusting in cultural traditions and not in the king who had come to fulfill them. In Galatians 6.15, Paul puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. He says this, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but a new creation. You can't know God. You can't belong to God. You can't be right with God unless this old man dies and God raises it up on the inside to be new. That's all that counts for salvation. In other words, customs can't save Jews and lack of customs can't save Gentiles. Only Jesus saves. These Jews 
don't have to discard their customs as long as they don't require others to follow those customs in order to be accepted. But because Paul's teachings have been misrepresented, the question is this, how can he be embraced by the community? How can he be embraced by these massive thousands of new Jewish believers? How will unity in Jerusalem be maintained? And so in verse 22, the elders ask, what then is to be done? What are we going to do about this misunderstanding? There's going to be no way to hide that Paul has shown up. And I've got to be honest with you. If I'm Paul before the elders, I think I might have asked to preach a sermon. I mean, that's what Paul does, right? He preaches sermons, he disciples, he writes great letters. But instead of asking to preach a sermon, the elders ask Paul to be the sermon. Specifically, they ask him in verses 23 and 24... To, as Peterson says it, take public action by joining in a purification rite and paying the expenses of four men who were members of the church and had made a vow, specifically a Nazarite vow. We know that because of reference to having their heads shaved. That these men were completing a temporary Nazarite vow as described in number six. Vows, why, why were vows made by God's people? They were made to express gratitude to God or as prayers for his future blessing. And now Paul is urged to purify himself along with them. Now this is interesting because Paul's already completed a Nazarite vow back in Acts 18. So he's not under a Nazarite vow, but he does have to purify himself before going into the temple because he's been in Gentile territory. So Paul needs a seven-day period of ritual purification as described in Numbers 19, while these four men need a period of ritual purification, as described in Numbers 6. So you have these coinciding purification periods, and Paul is asked to financially assist them with securing the animals for the sacrifice and fulfilling their vow. Why? Verse 24, do you see it? All will know, or at least they should know, that the allegations about Paul and his teaching are false, and that he lives, meaning he lives uprightly, as one who guards or keeps the law. Now, this is, this is a really interesting statement. Because does Paul guard the law? He certainly respects the law and upholds the law as a standard that shows us our sin. But his relationship with the law changed when he met Jesus, did it not? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 20 and 23, he writes this, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Listen to this, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. In other words, with them, when I'm with Jews, happy. I'm happy to celebrate Passover. I'm happy to do whatever's necessary to go into the temple as long as people recognize that this building has given way to the living Lord Jesus Christ who is the temple of God's presence to the ends of the earth. He continues, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Now that's fascinating to me. Not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Did you know in the New Testament that nine of the ten commandments 
are repeated in the New Testament. Right? The, new, the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, nine out of ten are repeated. Which one is not repeated? The law of Sabbath. Why is the law of Sabbath not repeated? Because Sabbath is a person and his name is Jesus. And we rest in him not one day a week, but for all of our lives. And Paul says, under the power of the Spirit, I keep the law of Christ, which is nine out of the ten commandments. And the tenth is kept because you're in Christ anyway. He does all this. To be under the law, or to keep the law, or to not keep the law, depending on whom he's with, why? That he might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Why does he do it? He does it all for the sake, he says, of the gospel. In other words, Paul does whatever he can to clear the field and get people to look at Jesus and what he's done. Let me live my life in such a way that you will behold Jesus and the treasure that he is. Paul doesn't object to Jewish converts following their Jewish customs as long as they aren't compromising the gospel and as long as they don't require these customs of Gentiles. So in verse 26, what does Paul do? He follows customary Jewish law, not so that he can be right with God, but so that he can satisfy the consciences of his Jewish brethren. He submits to this proposal, not because he had taught something wrong, but because, as Marita writes, he's being like Jesus, who humbled himself, looking out for the interests of others in selfless and redeeming love. And church, I want to apply this for us this morning. We need to do the same. We need to reach out to others in the selfless and redeeming love of Jesus. To to reach people from different backgrounds in 2023 and to remain united as we do, we are going to have to embody some of this same selfless humility that we see in Paul. Did you know in the United States, the number of people who are professing to be Christians is plummeting right now? It is in straight line decline. Over the last decade, We've seen a 75% reduction in the number of people claiming to be Christians. Meanwhile, we've seen a meteoric rise in the number of people who say they're nothing. I'm agnostic, I'm atheist, I'm whatever, it doesn't matter. So they say. This, This means, church, that we've got to reach new people from different backgrounds. We don't have a choice. And that means we're going to have to reach people who have little familiarity with church as we know it. It means when we show up and Paul is playing a prelude as people walk in and it's it's just as I am or some other familiar hymn, that people are going to walk through our doors and there's going to be music on in the background and they're going to have no clue what the words to that song are. Are you tracking with me? We, we have to begin to think about how we're going to reach people who have no customs and no practice connected to who we are or what we've done because there's a lost and dying world out there. The, the number of people who are believing on Christ in our country is falling, it's plummeting, which means we can't just swap sheep with other churches anymore. We've got to reach lost and dying people who are coming from backgrounds that have no knowledge of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So where the gospel runs counter to a cultural practice or custom, we've got to stand with the gospel every single time. When people come in and say, you've got to accept 
oh, I don't know, my transgenderism or my homosexuality or the fact that I like to steal stuff or whatever. Of course we don't accept that. The gospel doesn't accept that. It changes that. But there are some cultural practices around us that are unfamiliar to us that are not contrary to the gospel. And we're going to have to be willing to humble ourselves to grow the tent and reach other people. Let me give you an example. If we had, for instance, a large group of English-speaking Chinese members, would it be okay for us to help them ring in the Chinese New Year? Why not? If, if Christian parents want to come to this church or lost parents want to come to this church with young children and they're not comfortable taking them to the nursery right away, but they're more comfortable having their bambino with them right beside them because that's where they've always been. When their baby first cries out, do we all turn and scowl at them and then send them a memo that says, hey, we've got a nursery? No, we don't do that. We have got to align our culture with the gospel, but part of having a gospel culture is on the one hand being dead set committed to doing what we find in the scriptures, but on the other hand being welcoming and opening and open hearted to people from all kinds of backgrounds who are unfamiliar with who we are and what we do and why we do it. That's embedded in the gospel. So here's a question. You're at Walmart and you meet a man and he's got a turban on his head. I don't even know if that's the right word. But you you get the opportunity to share the gospel with him. And he's he's emerging from an Islamic culture and you present Jesus to him. He understands and he comes to saving faith in Christ. And he shows up next Sunday with a turban on his head. Not because he's worshiping Muhammad or Allah, but because that's what he does. Are we going to be okay with that? Are we going to welcome him in Jesus' name? We should, should we not? So let's make it a little more personal. Have you ever laid down a preference or paid a price for the overall good and strength and vitality and unity of the body of Christ? Or is it just all about you and what you want? Paul had to pay real expenses on behalf of other people for the unity of the church to defend himself against something that he didn't even say or believe, but he still did it for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the unity of the church. Is this about you or is it about Jesus? Is it about you or is it about reaching others? Has a ministry ever changed or been eliminated and you chose as an act of obedience to Jesus and blessing to new believers to follow your leadership and pay the high and hard cost of enduring change with grace for the health of the church and the glory of God and kept your mouth shut with joy because Jesus overrules and he's worthy of that? Is this on? Church, that's the sort of thing that Paul is doing here. In verse 26, he's showing us, he's demonstrating to us selfless humility to keep the church together in the mission. He and these Jewish believers purify themselves. Paul enters the temple. He makes the arrangements to offer sacrifices at the end of their purification period. He is not denying the sufficiency of the gospel or of Jesus' sacrifice, but he is showing us the power of the gospel to lead us to selflessly navigate cultural differences and lay down ourselves to demonstrate unity in Christ. 
Christ. But here's the irony of this text. Paul's willingness to follow Jewish custom becomes the reason that he is accused of teaching against Jews, the temple, and their law in verse 28. In other words, Paul's good intentions run directly into man's bad actions. Let's pick up the text in verse 27. When the, de- when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, Word came to the tribune of the court that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. What do we see in verse 27 through 36? Paul's doing everything he can to honor the living Lord Jesus. He's doing everything he can to keep the church united and on mission, and yet he still runs headlong into the bad actions of those defending a way of life rather than depending on Jesus. In verse 27, Paul is there in the temple. It's, it's nearly time to, create, to complete his purification and offer sacrifices for the four men he is helping out. I want to be sure we get this. Paul is keeping the law, but that doesn't stop Jews from Asia from accusing him of teaching against the people and the law and this place, meaning the temple. He's doing everything he can, and yet he's still accused of not doing the very thing that he's doing. Is that frustrating or what? Anybody ever been through that? Like, that's exactly what I'm not doing, but you say that's what I'm doing. Stop it! But Paul doesn't lose his mind. He keeps rolling. Uh, Apparently, this seven-day purification period gave the Jews from Asia some time to come up with a plan to sabotage the man that they had hated for a while. Because they're Jews from Asia, right? Which means they're most likely Jews from Ephesus, which means they certainly were familiar with Paul and his ministry in Ephesus. Do you remember what Paul did when he got to Ephesus? He taught for three months in the Ephesian synagogue, but in chapter 19, verse 9, we read that when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, that Paul withdrew from them. Do you remember this? So three months in Ephesus, he's in the synagogue, and then he withdraws, and he has this massive ministry to Gentiles in Asia over the next two years. And yet, these Jews are still upset with Paul. They still want to take the gospel message out. They still are stubborn in their unbelief. 
They want to override the gospel. They want to push the gospel to the side because it's a message that pushes us outward for the good of others and the glory of Christ rather than inward for the pleasure of ourselves and the glory of our traditions. We love our traditions, don't we? We love our routine. Jesus comes in and blows it up. And they don't have any tolerance for it. You say, well, that was back there in the first century. That was those first century Jews, and the temple was still standing. A decade later, by the way, the temple would be toppled by the Romans. You say, we, we don't have any of those tendencies in our own lives. Do we not? Is this sort of self-focused territorial mindset only a problem for first century Jews? Or is it not the case, and it is the case, that once great churches are dying by the hundreds and the thousands across our land because somewhere along the way, the identity of these churches became about their programs, it became about their history and their traditions and the way they've always done things. And you know what they lost in the shuffle? They lost Jesus. They lost who He is and what He's done. And they lost the flexibility that He builds into our lives to reach more people. And when that happens, church, whether it's Jews in the first century temple or a once vibrant church that's become a club-like collection of people with a little Jesus talk on the side, the result is the same. It is lifeless. It is misguided and it cannot save. It is focused on ourselves rather than the Savior. It's focused on the past rather than on the provision that God has made for us in Christ. And it might make us feel important and significant and useful and powerful, but it ends in death. A death that self-righteous people will never stop defending until they die unless a holy God interrupts their thinking, leads them to die to self, and gloriously saves them. These Jews from Asia seeing Paul in the temple, want to take him out. They, they accuse him of teaching against the Jewish people and the law in the temple and of breaking the law by bringing a Greek or a Gentile into the temple's inner courts. And we know the first charge is false because Paul is preaching Jesus, who is the true temple, who is the Son of God, the firstborn of Israel, who can make all people belong to God as His people. And he's not denying that the law shows us our sin and leads us to know Christ. So charge one is wrong and charge two is also false because they invented it. They conveniently suppose, verse 29, that Paul did something that he didn't do. He didn't bring a Greek into the inner portions of the temple. To do so would be punishable, interestingly enough, by death. So what's going on in this text? What is, what is Luke showing us? we got to step out for a second. You say this is kind of get in the weeds of the details, step out of the text for just a moment. Let me ask you, can you think of someone who was falsely accused of being against the Jewish people, breaking their law, and speaking against the temple? Can, can you think of somebody who might be like that in, say, the Gospels? We're about ready to get to Easter? Can you think of someone who, who walks into Jerusalem hailed as a king, but a, a week later is crucified as one who's against the Jewish people, breaking their law and speaking against the te temple? You, you know somebody like that? Of course you can. 
His name is Jesus. He was perceived as a threat to Jewish assumptions of spiritual privilege and superiority, and he was, he was charged with crimes he did not commit. In Matthew 27, 4, Judas said he had betrayed innocent blood. In John's Gospel, three times, Pilate, the Roman governor responsible for the trial of Jesus, says he finds no fault in Jesus. In Luke 23, 41, one of the, three, thie, one of the thieves crucified with Jesus said Jesus had done nothing wrong. In Luke 23, 47, the centurion in charge of the crucifixion declared, certainly this man was innocent. This one who was innocent and took our sins to Calvary and left them nailed there, rose on the third day. And now that he has conquered the grave and ascended the Father and poured out his Holy Spirit to unite us with Jesus in his mission, guess what? The pattern that we saw in Jesus' life is now reflected in the life of his disciples. Paul is like Jesus. Paul did the right thing with right motives like Jesus, but he was misrepresented like Jesus. And as we see in verses 30 and 32, he's maliciously attacked by people who are rejecting Jesus, just like Jesus had been rejected for following God. These Asian Jews stir up all the city, verse 30. They seize Paul, verse 30. They drag him, and they are seeking to kill him when word reaches Roman authorities. And so they bring soldiers and centurions... And we see this collusion of Jew and Roman government to arrest Paul. Does that sound a bit like Jesus? And they're crying out. Verse 36, oh, away with him, away with him, away with him. The crying out is, is constant. As we near the Easter season, you can almost hear the echo of Jews not too long before crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Imagine for a moment that you are Paul. Your teaching has been misrepresented, so you plan to humbly help believing Jews and unify the church by keeping Jewish law only to be accused of breaking it, and you end up beaten to a pulp and arrested. In this moment, Paul's got to be thinking, Lord, what in the world is going on? I'm doing everything you're asking me to do, and all I see is adversity. What is, what is God teaching us? Beloved, here's what God is teaching us. He's teaching us that faithfulness to God means doing the right thing regardless of the results. Faithfulness to God means doing the right thing regardless of the results. In the eyes of God, just because something works doesn't mean it's right. Furthermore, in the eyes of God, just because something doesn't seem to work right away doesn't mean it is wrong. Doing what the Lord wills is right, even when it leads to our death. Because Jesus died to overcome our death. He did what was right in the eyes of God. He was killed for us. But praise God, He gave up His life in service to the God who raises the dead. So how do we live this life like Jesus lived for us? How do we lay down ourselves for the glory of God and the good of others only to get pummeled in the world? We have to remember Jesus and His resurrection. We have to look to the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We look to the one who conquered the grave and will surely glorify us in the day of His return. But we must not expect an easy road. 
doing the right thing with right motives doesn't mean that self-righteous people with self-righteous perspectives and wrong motives will be convinced. Right action by us does not guarantee a right response in others. We can show love in our community, and in our community, if cultural trends continue, they still might try to tax us, mute us, and sideline us in society, and yet it is okay because Jesus is worthy of our faithfulness regardless of the results. Do you believe that this morning? Is Jesus worthy of your faithfulness regardless of the results? But I want to encourage you as we close. Even when the path of faithfulness to the Lord is filled with challenges, Jesus has not surrendered His throne. King Jesus is always in charge, even when it's tough. Hear the word of the Lord in verses 37 through 40 as we close. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins, literally the dagger men, out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and we're going to stop there, and we're going to consider what Paul said next week so you can get some lunch sometime today. But I want you to see this last point as we close. I want you to see that God never surrenders His throne. I want you to see that even though Paul did the right thing and got a wrong response and ran into bad actors, that God is still behind the scenes directing. And in this case, he is directing and providing a platform for sharing the gospel. In verse 37, Paul, having been beaten and bound, strikes up a conversation with the arresting officer. I mean, what else do you do if you've been beaten and imprisoned? Hey, how's it going? You know Greek? Tribune is shocked. This guy knows Greek. Then in verse 38, the translation we read is, is, I think, a bit misguided. What happens in verse 38 is he concludes that Paul, since he's speaking Greek, is not the Egyptian who had stirred up a revolt of 4,000 assassins. In other words, I thought you were that guy, but you're not that guy because you're speaking Greek. And then in verse 39 and 40, Paul asks to speak to the people who had attacked him. He mentions that he's from Tarsus, that he, which was an important Roman and a Roman metropolis that was a hub of political and economic and intellectual influence. And he also notes that he's a Jew. He's not trying to attack Jews. He is a Jew. So despite the challenges that Paul has faced, he's not gotten so down that he forgets to look up to the one who called him to be on mission. Though he's wounded and restrained, he still leverages every possible advantage to exalt Jesus. Yes, God, I'm in this prison cell, but I'm still from Tarsus and I'm still a Jew. And the sovereign God who has me in a prison cell is the sovereign God who had me born in Tarsus. Is the sovereign God who had me be a Jew. And I'm going to speak those things right now, God, and I'm going to see what you're going to do with it. Paul had acted with good intentions. He was beaten by bad actors. And yet God, who is sovereign over all, was bringing Paul a gospel opportunity in verse 40. Church, this is a picture of your life individually as a believer and of our lives together as a church. 
It is a picture of what it is like to be on mission to the nations. We will have to demonstrate selfless love toward one another as our church grows and includes more and more people from backgrounds who are totally unfamiliar with who we are and what we're about. And as we do that, we will run headlong into bad actors. They will say bad things about us. They will call us bigots. They will say we don't love people. We don't care about people. That we're, not, that we're against freedom because they don't understand freedom. You're not truly free unless you've got the Spirit of God who empowers you to do the will of God. But they will say all kinds of things about us as we lay down our lives for the good of others. And yet, in the midst of all this, God is on His throne. As we do this, some who are committed to the way things have always been or threatened by the salvation of others that comes only by grace through faith in Jesus will try to stop us. But church, no one is going to stop the gospel. No one's going to stop the gospel. God will complete His work in the world. For a moment, it seems Paul is sunk, but by verse 40, he's ready to share the gospel. As Lika As Lisa Turker said, we serve a God who allows hurt, but we also serve a God who uses hurt for good. Beloved, we've got to remember the pain of living for Jesus is nothing compared to the life we've been given in Him. We need to know that God is sovereign and He's good. He's the boss and He does what what is best. So the answer to our suffering for the sake of Christ is Jesus. In a missions class... Years ago at Southeastern, I learned of a man who trusted Jesus in India, nearly a thousand miles from his hometown. In his hometown, they were very much so practitioners of, of Hindu. This man who was saved, gloriously saved, realized immediately he didn't go to an evangelism class. Nobody had to tell him. Nobody had to train him. He realized that his family and his hometown were going to be lost without Jesus. So after being, after coming to saving faith in Christ, this man who had no shoes began his journey home. And when he arrived, he began to preach Jesus, which is not something you wanted to do in this Hindu village. And his own family were the ringleaders in beating him repeatedly and leaving him for dead under a tree just outside the village. The following morning, The village went out to see the man who was surely dead, and yet he was alive. He was curled up under the tree in the fetal position, and as they approached, the bottoms of his feet were facing them. And when he came, they had not noticed the soles of his feet, but the man had journeyed nearly a thousand miles with no shoes over dusty and rocky roads. His feet were swollen and lacerated and had gaping sores. And they concluded that if this man surrendered his feet like that, 
then maybe they should hear the gospel he had to proclaim. That man preached the gospel to that village. They heard the gospel, believed on Christ, and were saved. And later that day, he succumbed to his injuries. Church, God has rescued us through his son. He has given us assurance of his presence every step of the way and of our own resurrection at Christ's return. Why? So that we can do hard things for his glory now, no matter what it takes. Do you have that kind of assurance? Do you have that kind of hope that would lead you to lay your life down for the good of the one who gives us a living hope? I want to invite our worship team to come. I don't know about you, but this text has challenged me this week. Maybe you do know Jesus, but when things get hard, you want to run away from them rather than run toward them, trusting that God is still directing and leading. Maybe you don't know this king at all. Maybe, maybe you're trying to save your own life. Maybe you're trying to defend your own traditions, trying to get to God in your own strength, your own power, in your own way, and you recognize this morning, that's not possible. I'm just like those first century Jews trying to do my own thing. However you need to respond this morning. God in heaven, thank you for your presence among us. Thank you for the saints who are here today uh, despite the snow and uh, the sleepiness. I pray, God, that you would bless us with a restful afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.